it's over 9,000! Welcome, Super Elite Warriors, to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the Bikini. Welcome back, everyone. Yes, listeners, I'm still suffering from some neurological impairment, causing me to hear Bikini as if he were actually talking to me. Don't forget this delusion of yours also insists that you're speaking for me and sound just like me as well. Exactly right. I've improved my impressionist skills and have Bikini's voice and speech patterns down perfectly, allowing my still fractured brain to pretend he's here with us instead of having his charred remains thrown into an incinerator. I thought my body would be returned to my loved ones for proper disposal, you know, as per the traditions of my people. And what are the traditions of your people? That's not important right now. How convenient of my brain to invent such a clever answer to that question, since I couldn't possibly have known the answer. No, listen. Oh, God, you're frustrating. Okay, what my people do with the body doesn't matter. When I signed on, that was a clause in the contract. You actually read the contract? Doesn't everyone? Well, I guess I must have, since... You know the clauses, and since you are me, or a part of me, if you know, then I know. So, thinking backwardsly, I guess I must have some sort of superpower reading skill I didn't even know I had. But, no, basically, I usually just click accept on anything sent out by the Frieza Force. I can't believe you don't actually read the liability notices and contracts you're signing. This is your life and your name. You could be signing away your freedom, your privacy, your rights. Whole industries are founded on the idea of taking advantage of people too lazy or stupid to read and understand the agreements they're signing, and you're just part of the problem. Astounding. What? The partition in my brain that's keeping our personalities separate has you so pegged. I never would spout that kind of screed about privacy and rights and data protection and the importance of making sure we don't subject ourselves to exploitation by a system of corrupt megacorporations. But here, quote-unquote, you are 
doing it as if you weren't a charred smoking husk whose family, by the way, would be more horrified by the what remains of your body than comforted by its return. Trust me, you're better off being hucked into the incinerator. You know, I'd be mad at your lack of even a modicum of respect for the dead if I weren't alive and trudging my way over to your location. I'm not holding my breath waiting for your arrival. Maybe you should. Then I could hook your body into the incinerator. Rude. Not if you knew what we do to the dead on my planet. Let's move past that, since I don't want to know what horror story my brain will invent to explain what your people do with dead bodies. We've got a podcast to record. And today we'll be talking about six, count them, six episodes of the Dragon Ball anime, because we probably should have talked about one more last time. <laughs> we probably should have done episode 50 at least last time. That's right. So strap strap yourselves in, folks, because uh, this summary is going to be a little bit on the long side. We've got episodes 50 through 55. That basically takes us through a bunch of stuff with Pirate Booty and General Blue and up to meeting the Dr. Slump characters. So Bikini is going to recap it for us. Okay, here we go. So we open on our heroes still exploring the caves with Blue in hot pursuit. We then check in on Commander Red, who's getting a portrait painted, and a bit of foreshadowing about what he might want to have the Dragon Balls for. Uh, Booby traps galore, and this all gets capped off with our heroes discovering a pirate robot. He's a fierce enemy, much like Major Metallotron, but he also manages to separate our heroes with Bulma and Krillin, who, for sake of brevity, I will now be calling Brillin from here on in, (laughs) taking the lead with Blue right behind them. In a bit of underhanded genius, Blue messes with the arrows that Brillin leave behind to, de- to delay Goku from catching up to them. Brillin find a well and dive inside to find the Dragon Ball. Blue continues to track them underwater, and Goku inadvertently goes the wrong way. Brillin and Blue surface in another cave containing a booby trap statue protecting some treasure chests. Meanwhile, Goku gets in a fist fight with a giant octopus and fries it with a Kamehameha wave. Back in the treasure room... Brillin are now trying to deal with flying swords, trying to impale them that are being thrown by the statue. Krillin, using a little bit of ingenuity, grabs one of these swords out of the ground, deflects the rest of them, and then gives the statue a taste of its own medicine by impaling it right between the eyes. Brillin try one of the treasure chests only to find yet another booby trap, but it's pretty ineffective. Chest number two, however, contains a key, and a cor- there's a corresponding keyhole in the base of the statue. Unlocking the statue causes it to vomit treasure everywhere. Awesome. <laughs> At this point, Blue decides to make his move. After Balma fails to seduce him, Krillin tries to best him in combat. Blue makes quick work of Krillin due to his paralysis move. I believe it's called Hypnosis Eyes or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there's a few other names for it too that we'll get into. But before he can finish the job, Goku appears. Blue and Goku square off with Goku getting the upper hand but he also falls prey to the same paralysis technique. Blue then whips out a shotgun to finish them all off once and for all, but is again denied satisfaction by a mouse. The mouse scares him so badly it breaks his concentration and this frees Goku from the paralysis technique. He pokes Blue in the eyes so that he can't use it again, then promptly knocks him unconscious. Brillin then start to head back to the sub while Goku continues to search this room for the Dragon Ball. He eventually finds the three-star Dragon Ball in the skull of a dead pirate, which introduces a plot hole that we're not going to think about, and rushes back to his friends. 
Meanwhile, Brillin makes it to uh, the underwater dock. They commandeer this uh, new sub. Bulma expresses some doubt that they can wait for Goku, worried that they're going to get trapped in the cave-in. But before they can leave him behind, he actually makes it back to the dock with the mouse that saved his life in his mouth, which I try not to think about, but it still haunts my dreams. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Our heroes make a hair-raising escape from the underwater tunnels thanks to another well-timed Kamehameha wave and eventually make their way back to Roshi's. There, Bulma reveals she smuggled a diamond out of the cave in her uh, shorts, question mark? Blue manages to survive the cave collapse, gets another plane to HQ, and flies to Roshi and jumps out of the plane without a parachute and just sticks the landing. Not even like a hero landing, like dropping to one knee. Nah, just straight up stick, like 10 out of 10 on the landing. What a badass. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Launch, also a badass, sneezes, and her evil side steals the diamond only to fly off, robbing our heroes of a billion zenny. Womp womp. While they figure out what their next steps are going to be, Blue telepathically ties up the crew with ropes, steals the Dragon Balls, and then leaves our heroes to be killed by a bomb with a five-minute timer. Fortunately, like most villains, he forgets to stay and make sure that the job gets completed. And Launch has a change of sneeze heart, flies back to Roshi's Island, and manages to save everybody in the nick of time. Goku decides to pursue Blue, catches up with him over this weird village, but Blue, ever the sneaky rogue, uh, uses his thrusters off of his jet to knock Goku off the Nimbus, but also unintentionally crashes into a mountain. And that's where we end episode 55. Yeah, with Goku standing face-to-face with uh, Arale from Dr. Slump. It's funny, 50% at least of what you just said is all from episode 55. Yeah, roughly. (laughs) The first five of these six episodes move at such a glacial pace. You were like, oh, there's booby traps. That's a whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like, oh, they they fight a pirate, pirate robot. robot. That's, that's a whole episode. episode. <laughs> Which I guess that one's okay because at least that's very action-y. Yeah, but there's still like a lot of – and this is, this is a, another thing I kind of want to touch on really quick is – there's a lot of reused animation in these episodes, mm-hmm. and there's also like a lot of jarring changes in animation quality. And I get that like this is a thing with anime, the production schedules and stuff that they have. But like uh, in I think it's episode fifty when they're going through the traps. There's one in particular, the the lava pit that they fall into. That's like really well done and well animated. It looks really smooth. All of the lighting effects and everything in it are fantastic. And then, like, the thing after that is them getting to the dock where the the pirate robot is, and it's like the animation budget just falls off a cliff. <laughs> they blew they blew the budget for that episode on the on the preceding moment, and they're like, "Crap, we still have a minute left of this episode." <laughs> it's like whoever was directing it was like, "Yeah, let's go out on all out on the animation." And like a third of the way through the episode, someone came in and said, "Boss, we don't have any." We don't have any budget for the rest of the episode. And then, yeah, the the thing with the chests, like, that's a whole filler bit. Three treasure chests, and then one of them has a key that unlocks a statue that makes the... Tri- like, that's just all chewing up time. And it's it's funny, too, because these... Ep- like, this is where I started noticing, and I, and I think this has been happening for a few episodes at this point, but this is where I've really started to notice... These episodes don't even start until like the five minute mark of the episode. You yeah. got you get your two minute opening 
and then you've got like two and a half to three minutes of recapping the previous episode and when it's recapping it is literally just like showing you scenes that happened last time and then the narrator is like talking over them and he's like last time general blue stood in front of three treasure chests and you're like and then if that, and that's if you're lucky sometimes there's not even narration it's just straight up the same scenes from the previous episode just played over again yeah, so I start. I started noticing that in these, like the 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 padding, the runtime padding is starting to get like we talked. We talked in our episode where we talked about like filler about times where they really caught up and times where they had to slow down. This feels like a time where One they had to be downs. like, yeah, they had to be Absolutely. like, uh oh, uh oh, we've caught up too much. Slow <laughs> down, slow down. But there's some good stuff in here. I think the like. I think that episode 55 is actually a pretty good one. A lot happens actually in that one. Yeah, that one was actually reasonably paced and 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 ends at a, a good spot where you're like, oh, well, what's what's going on with this town? If you're not familiar with Dr. Slump, and if you are familiar with Dr. Slump, it's, ooh, crossover episode. And it's also got some funny stuff in it. <laughs> the moment where they specifically point out that Bulma was carrying the, the diamond in her pants is like mind-boggling <laughs> that they it's a little beyond the pale like krillin's like oh i thought you had a big bulge for a, a girl and you're like what the? so yeah they're, they're it's these episodes are okay this is this is sort of reaffirming the thing i said when we got into the red ribbon army in general of this kind of being my least favorite stuff yeah and i think it's pretty obvious why because just the the padding and the multiple episodes where it just like it seems like nothing happens the pace right. is just so slow even though there's not a lot happening we do have some cool stuff to talk about so we'll get into some of it you know you mentioned in your recap that the booby tracks evo- evoke the booby traps evoke raiders of the lost ark that's you know a toriyama standby and it's a, it's a you know favorite film of his it's you know whatever we've lost track of how many favorite movies he has he likes uh, all the movies. But then, you know, the base collapse is also inspired by Indiana Jones as well. And it, it it's a series that proves so popular in Japan. It's even given homage in movies that continue well past where you would have an Indiana Jones homage in America. Uh, the 1992 film Godzilla vs. Mothra has an Indiana Jones sequence to kind of start that movie off where the main character steals some golden idol and then the the temple mysteriously collapses. It's a pretty popular series over there. It's popular here too. The the pirate robot has a xenomorph head. Xenomorphs being the aliens from Alien. And I really kind of wish I would have said the aliens from Aliens, but <laughs> I guess both are technically correct. Yeah, I just <laughs> Toriyama is is starting to pull from some science fiction as well as action and kung fu, even if only a little bit. Uh, the appearance of the robot though is similar to the monster robot that Dragon Boy does battle with. If you remember when we spoke about Dragon Boy a little bit in our episode where we talked about Dragon Ball prototypes, you know, he's starting to sprinkle in some more concept art or discarded designs or prototypes or whatever 
what he, have you. Is he sprinkling in new designs, or is or is he just so lazy that he's just going back to old concept art, so he doesn't have to come up with something new? <laughs> there, there could be that. There could also be the idea of like you know we talked about. I think isn't Roshi designed after a character, but it's like some character who's not a major character. Yeah, I, and, think, I think so, if I remember correctly. And he's like, oh, I just like that character, so I wanted to use the design more. Like, he could be doing some of that, too, right? So Sure, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and then the sword that the pirate robot wields is similar to the sword used by the hero in the game Dragon Quest, which was designed by Toriyama. So you could, you know, just pick out his style in other things. And we talk about Goku fighting the octopus, uh, this is another tribute by Toriyama to the kaiju films that he grew up watching. There's a giant octopus featured in King Kong vs. Godzilla, and again in the film War of the Gargantuas, which starred Russ Tamblin. At that time in Toho films, they were like bringing in American actors who had sort of a modicum of notoriety to try and you know boost some international interest. Russ Tamblin very famously was not into it. Like he's he's one of the ones who he talks he he has talked later in life about how like he wishes he had treated it with more respect and he finally saw the movie and he liked it, but at the time he considered himself kind of a too big of a deal to be in it cuz he had been in West Side Story. Russ Tamblin, by the way, also in Twin Peaks, and I love Twin Peaks. But, so, the octopus, it was, a, it was a favorite of special effects director for all or most of the Toho Godzilla movies and for Ultraman, uh, A.G. Superaya, and it was planned to be used in other movies as well. Most notably, Frankenstein Conquers the World, where a whole sequence with the giant octopus was actually shot at the behest of the film's American co-financers, who were really taken with the octopus in King Kong vs. Godzilla. And they were like, oh, put an octopus in this one, because we like that sequence in the other one. Ultimately... They felt that where it was put into the movie was too abrupt. It was like in the final couple minutes of the movie, and they had it cut from the final film. But it's been included on a bunch of the home video releases, and I, oh boy, I put my foot in my mouth a little bit. I think when you watch it on like Tubi or something, it's on there. I don't even know. That, that might be totally wrong, but you could find the sequence really easily. There's also been concept art for the octopus appearing in Godzilla Final Wars. Uh, there was an early script, uh, early script draft for the octopus to appear in Godzilla's Revenge, and there's an episode of Ultra Q which features a giant octopus as well. So Japan has this sort of fascination with octopuses. If Octopi. if only in, I thought it was octopuses. I'm pretty sure it's octopi. I thought I heard recently that it's octopuses. Like we well, all then, thought for then maybe you have more more recent info than I do. Maybe I'm wrong. We we all thought it for a decade. It it who's, was octopi. Who is the fact checker on this show? <laughs> they should be fired. <laughs> the three plur- there's three plurals. Oh, whoa, lovely. Whoa, whoa. So what is it? Octopus? Is it plural? And okay, then octopi and octopuses. Octopi. Octopuses okay. and okay. octopodes. Uh, that one, that last one's got to be a joke. There's no, no it's because it's real. it's because it's Greek and it should have a Greek ending. Oh, 
I stand corrected. That's probably the most correct version then. So nobody knows is the answer. All right, perfect. In any event, Japan has had a long fascination with the plural of octopus. <laughs> <laughs> no, that still sounds horrible because now it just sounds like they're they're obsessed with the word. <laughs> uh, if only in a in sort of a general kind of sense because Japan is such a sea-based nation and therefore a fascination with the sea in general and Japan's home to some of the largest fish markets in the world. But still, as far back as at least the 1100s and probably further back, but uh, the 1100s, octopus, octopi have, I'm just going to use each one interchangeably. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Have squirmed their ways into the pop culture of Japan and its dreams or nightmares, depending on your point of view. The legend of Princess Tamatori was developed in this 1100s time frame around a historical figure who lived in the 600s. And it's about a pearl diver who reclaims a pearl stolen by the dragon god of the sea. And along the way, she has to fight through the army of of these sea creatures that work for this dragon god, including octopodes. And the art that the story often inspired featured octopuses prominently. Uh, The legend becomes very popular in the Edo period, and interpretations of the art led to people creating the idea of octopuses lusting after women. Uh, Some early Netsuke art from the 17th century depicts octopi enveloping women, and then in 1814... There's a Shunga erotica book, Kinoe no Kamatsu, translated as Young Pines, that contains a woodblock printed design called Dream of the Fisherman's Wife. Just to back up for a second, Netsuke art, I believe, is like art that's carved. And then Shunga art is specifically erotic art. And the word Shunga means spring. And I forget the connotation that all of that has but it's shung netsuke is not necessarily erotic and shunga i believe i believe is so the dream of the fisherman's wife depicts a young pearl diver entwined sexually with a pair of octopi the piece winds up gaining quite a bit of notoriety and influences artists like rodin and picasso ever heard of them (laughs) with (laughs) With Picasso even drawing his own private version, which was ultimately put on display in 2009. This drawing is, you can, if you look up the dream of the fisherman's wife, it's like, you'll find it, you'll see it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I knew where this was going as soon as you said that there was, there was a, a sexual artwork of octopuses and women. I knew exactly where this was going. Yeah, it's, um... It's pretty graphic, and then, like, there's also words on it, like, the whole background, like, the image itself is there, and then the whole background is words. The words are, are talking about, like, the, it's like, there's there's an octopus who's performing cunnilingus, and he is, like, talking about how good he is at it. <laughs> and the woman is, like, is, like initially kind of like oh you're disgusting and then she's like oh but you are good at it (laughs) (laughs) 
And then there's a second octopus, and he's like, yeah, once he's done, I'm getting some too. Like, So, that's, oh, that's what it is. It, some scholars theorize that it's a forerunner of tentacle porn, which becomes popular in the 80s and 90s in Japanese animation and manga. No, scholars don't exactly agree, right? Some people say, like, oh, it definitely is, because... How can you have that as part of your culture and part of your cultural heritage and not have it influence your art later on down the line, which I kind of agree with. But other people say like there's no direct lineage that you can draw from that to modern tentacle erotica because it's generally not octopuses. It's more like aliens. And they their argument is because it's aliens, it's actually more of a post-war cultural phenomenon of the Japanese people feeling like outsiders or aliens or Americans have forced things upon them. We'll leave it up to listeners to decide which I didn't, side. I didn't think we were going to be getting this psychological this episode. The, the debate they want to fall on, and and you can see this fascination with octopi in all kinds of of Japanese storytelling and stuff. Uh, there's a huge plot thread with with an octopus in the movie Old Boy. Have you ever seen Old Boy? Sadly, um, I have not. It's a movie by Chanwook Park. It is one of the very best revenge stories of all time, period. Watch the Korean version, though. Do not watch the remake. I won't give it away, but there's there's a thing that revolves around the octopus. And coincidentally enough, because this is the episode where Blue is hypnotizing people, like hypnotic suggestion plays a a role in Old Boy as well. There's also, I believe, the Park Chan-wook movie, Chan-wook Park. I never know which way you're supposed to say that. The the film, The Handmaidens, The Handmaiden, it's just The Handmaiden, has actually this drawing, Dream of the Fisherman's Wife, appears in the movie as briefly. And then apparently, if you're a fan of Mad Men, which I never watched you will potentially recognize the print as being given to, and this is about to be some word salad that I don't understand. (laughs) It was given to Peggy Olsen by Roger Sterling near the end of the series and hung in Peggy Olsen's office as a culmination of her becoming comfortable as an executive, because that was a major plot point, apparently. So I will take your word for it. I never watched Mad Men. But apparently, this piece of erotica is in there. That makes sense. There's there's a lot of uh, saucy scenes in that show. <laughs> the statue that Krillin and Bulma, or as I like to call them, Brillin, uh, have a fight against uh, to get the treasure is Hindu-inspired. It's a bit odd for this portion of the story, as we're riffing more on Western stereotypes in general. But given how much Kung Fu culture comes from Indian Hinduism... It kind of makes sense. The statue's likely either of Kali or Shiva, and we're kind of leaning more towards Kali as sort of a reference to Kali Ma from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, just to kind of continue that theme. Much like the fight between Master Roshi, I mean, Jackie Chun, 
in the Budokai Tenkaichi was used to show us that Chun was a formidable fighter by dispatching Yamcha quickly, the brief battle between Blue and Krillin is meant to impress upon us how tough an opponent Blue will be. He can handle Krillin with ease. Even Roshi had to work for it. What will this mean for Goku? Blue uses his supernatural power, the technique of golden binds or metal fastening technique, which is based on the idea of sleep paralysis and, cult- and a culture figure. Uh, the full name of the technique is Kanashibari. It's associated with a little-known Buddhist warrior god named Fudo Miu. I think I said that right? Who, who knows? <laughs> who binds evil with an indestructible metal lasso. Japanese uh, Shugenja monks worship Fudo Miu beginning in about the 600s and are attributed with the ability to paralyze animals or bandits with a simple stare. Uh, the stories of these monks become more well-known over time and embellished upon until they become attributed widely and generally to martial artists as a whole. And many practitioners today claim to have experienced the sensation of being bolted to the ground by a stare or a shout from a well-trained master as if by some sort of supernatural power. Most likely, this all stems from the ability of highly trained martial artists to acutely and unwittingly attack crucial pressure points, interrupting the electrical impulses flowing through the nervous system and causing your body to not obey your commands to move. There's there's, there's my word salad right there. It's Can basically I- just saying, like, yeah, if it if you're in a fight with a good martial artist, right, they, they could hit you in some pressure point okay. that... That you wouldn't even know they hit because they're moving so fast. Oh, kind of like Xena uh, Warrior Princess with her yeah, pressure points. Or, or like Pai Mei's five-point palm exploding oh, heart technique. Oh, yes. How did I not think of that one immediately? That's my favorite. Something that, that you don't even you almost don't even notice because it happens so fast. And then it because it's a pressure point in your body, it actually like cuts off your nerve impulse for a second. And yeah, it so it gives locks. you like dead arm or essentially, but yeah. your whole body. So Kanashibari is also the Japanese word for sleep paralysis, a state in which a person can partially awaken during their REM sleep cycle, but their brains turned off their muscles. So they're not moving, you know, because people would have a tendency to like flail about while they're dreaming if they didn't. It's kind of like being physically imprisoned. Many people also associate sleep paralysis with demons or ghosts or otherworldly beings. Notably, the 2015 documentary film The Nightmare – Ex- uh, examines the shared similar traits of dreams those who suffer sleep paralysis tend to have. Yeah, so it's a pretty good doc, actually. It's decently scary. It's available for free on Tubi. Uh, I know that one for sure. I actually looked it up. <laughs> Maybe not by the time this episode comes out, I guess. But check it out. It's it's free. It's like 90 minutes long, and it talks about like these these people will have sleep paralysis every night or every other night or something like that. And uh, it's always like a dark figure in a whatever kind of looking suit with a hat. And like, they'll talk to someone across the country who's like, I always have sleep paralysis every night. And it's like a dark figure in a suit with a hat. And you're like, Oh, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) If you are like super, super uh, suggestible person, it, you might end up having like a dream about that for like a couple nights in a row. All right. Well, going to avoid that one then. <laughs> you know who else suffered from sleep paralysis? Toriyama. While working on Dr. Slump, he, he dealt with a, a bout of sleep paralysis. And per his story, he awoke to a feeling of intense pressure on his chest and four people standing over him. He initially assumed they were robbers, but as he struggled to move and shout at them, they disappeared and he came to full consciousness. 
being Japanese and more culturally steeped in spirituality, spirituality, he claims they were ghosts. I don't know if that inspired him, you know, to work some of that in or something. But also, kind of convenient that like they use this right before we get to the Doctor Slump crossover. Yeah, it's uh, it's either very coincidental, very planned by Toriyama, which. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or it's uh, if you're one of these people, it's, it's proof that we live in the Matrix. I'll go with option three. That sounds the most entertaining, honestly. <laughs> but speaking of Dr. Slump, it's crossover time. Now, Toriyama's never explained why he crosses over his two most popular manga, nor whether they are meant to very explicitly exist in the same universe. He just does it. So we have to assume assume that they do exist in the same universe, and therefore the crossover is canonical, if canon even means anything in Dragon Ball. This crossover, though, is kind of unique in terms of grand crossovers, because it's not the result of two different artists who are working at a common publisher collaborating for like a large studio cash-in, which happens... I mean, that's, that's how like the Justice League was created there would be there were batman comics there were superman comics and someone was like let's do a team up and the the teams working on those two collaborated to make more money for dc comics and then they were like that was really popular let's keep doing it you know but it's not this isn't that right because it's not different artists and it's also not two separate studios getting together and cashing in with one another which is like the mcu spider-man movies right that's sony has the rights to spider-man disney was like yo we'll make some spider-man movies for y'all that way you can stop ruining that character (laughs) and sony was like we like sony was like we like money you know and they like worked some stuff out they were like please sony we will pay you money if you just let (laughs) us write these movies for you so why does Toriyama do it then, though? Uh, because it's just a single artist expanding his two worlds. The answer could lie, as many of them do for Toriyama in the movies he watched, uh, as a kid especially. So Godzilla and Mothra, King Kong, Rodan, these creatures all had their own solo features before ultimately duking it out with one another in the Godzilla franchise. And even before that, the Universal Monster movies that we know Toriyama likes because he features Dracula and mummies and Frankenstein's monster as well as Wolfman in his work. Whether they he has them as secondary characters or just background personnel, we're going to be seeing Dracula pretty soon, right? As like a... Doesn't Goku fight Dracula or he fights a mummy? Or does he fight both? In like, I don't know, it's it's probably like 20 or 25 episodes from now in the, the Fortune Teller Baba saga. But they all had their own solo films, The Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, before crossing over in movies like Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman or House of Frankenstein or even in the Abbott and Costello films. So crossing over popular characters for a boost in popularity and box office is a time-honored tradition of movie studios. Toriyama says he thinks of his stories like movies. So it could be as simple as something like that's where that all comes from. He thinks, 
hey, if I've got a popular franchise and another popular franchise, I cross them over because that's what, you know, Universal would do or Toho. Sure. That's what they would do. Also, real quick, just thinking back on the, the Fortune Teller Baba thing, it's funny that you mentioned every every Universal monster except the Invisible Man. And that's the one I know for a fact that they fight. <laughs> I think it's like Yamcha that fights him, if I remember right. Uh, whoops. Whoopsie. That kind of brings us to a larger discussion about franchises, crossovers, and cinematic universes. Because this is this is the era. We are in the era of the cinematic universe. And it is, it's something, I guess I'll say. It's, it's, I hate being like so, so negative, but when, when you've got like, like Toriyama crosses this stuff over, maybe, maybe, who knows, maybe sales were lagging a little bit and Torishima was like, dude, kick some, kick some more popular. Edited by Lord Frieza for our listeners' safety. Getting there so people will recognize it and like pick up. An, an issue you know i mean I, yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't think that that was uh unlikely right it still comes from a place of toriyama kind of just playing with his own universe and his own characters and not trying to create some sort of deep lore mythological universe of interconnected timelines and being methodical about it and and trying to trick people and i feel like that's what franchise crossover filmmaking has become is you studios do it for a a whole batch of reasons and and the the biggest one the only one really is money (laughs) i was gonna say yeah they have billions of reasons for it each one is a dollar and for sure audiences share some of the blame right because God forbid anyone go out and see a new wide release movie when they can go see something from the the MCU or an IP that they already know and love. At the same time, though, studios have latched onto that and they've realized it and they have now weaponized this idea against us in some horrifying ways it really is then you know when when auteur legendary filmmakers like martin scorsese and quentin tarantino try to tell people and warn them and be like this is we're on a bad path right now, guys. People are like, "Oh, shut up, you crusty old piece of sh-. Edited by Lord Frieza for our listeners' safety. And just you're just mad because you never got asked to make a Marvel movie. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but also no. Yeah, Martin Scorsese really wants to make a a Spider-Man movie where he makes a bunch of webs coming out of his butt jokes. You know, like. <laughs> It it really is. Studios have taken this idea of cinematic universes and they and they and and IP and nostalgia and that that because that could be an argument that that the Doctor Slump thing hits the nostalgia button, right? Oh, remember yeah. Doctor Slump? Remember? And and there is a bit of that going on, especially we'll see in the two crossover episodes where they're just like, oh look, character and other character and thing you remember, but that has now been turned against us as and I say us as a general viewing audience because we are now 
expected to like it. And if you don't, I, I, I really wish I had a better track on how this happened. But if you're like, oh boy, that wasn't very good. It just made me remember all these other things that I liked. Everyone's like, well, what? You don't like those things? And you're like, what? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, but I need more than just, hey, remember this thing? I need like, more than remember berries. I like Ghostbusters. I don't need to watch a whole Ghostbusters movie that tells me how great Ghostbusters was. I can just watch Ghostbusters. Exactly. <laughs> it's so weird because what the movies do, it, they're so bland is, the, is my other problem, right? It's just this very bland. They don't do things. So... I'll give you a pretty pretty good example of what I'm talking about to, to sort of contextualize this point. I, I saw Sonic 1, and I liked it enough to where when my son was like, Daddy, let's go see Sonic 2. I was like, hmm, okay. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't thrilled off my butt about going to see Sonic 2, but sure, we'll go for an outing. And hey, At least maybe the, first, be- the first one was palatable. Maybe you'll get lucky, and this one's decent. Right. I liked this, the second one, actually. I didn't love it. I liked it. I thought it was fun. I liked it as well. My biggest issue with it as a movie is there's multiple, multiple times where the movie, because this is how movies are made now, they have a character in the movie tell us how cool another character or thing from the franchise is so that fans can it's basically the movie talking about a character or a thing the way the fans do. Yeah. Tails constantly throughout Sonic 2 is like only Sonic the Hedgehog would something something cool and you're like, "Whoa, you just met each other." Like minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's like, "Sonic, you're the hero we need and you could save this whole world." And you're like, According to the backstory, as provided in the previous movie, he was like a little kid who got sent here by the owl lady, and no one ever knew who Sonic was. Well, at least that's the implication, yeah. But you gotta have the movie, quote-unquote, respecting the source material, so you just have characters in the movie talk about how cool something is so that fans don't get pissed that you and you don't end up with like a uh, Ghostbusters. What year was that? 2014, 2016. And you don't the one with the, all the women. I think that was 2016. Yeah. The movie was bad, but not because of that. But still. Yeah. And you was... you also don't end up with a Godzilla 1998 where people hate it because you feel like you disrespected the characters. So you just do nothing and have characters talk about Halloween kills is a really good example of that, or b- bad example, <laughs> <laughs> of, of a whole bunch of characters just being like, like there's just random characters who are like sitting in there. It's one thing when like Dr. Loomis would be like, he was the devil, da, da, da. and you're like, well, yeah, this guy's known him for 30 years. And, and was like his a, therapist and spent all kinds of time with him. Clearly obsessed with him. And then, like, in Halloween Kills, there's the, the 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 gay couple that live in Michael's old house. And they're like, Michael was like the devil. And he was... And you're like, who the hell are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> they have to remind us how bad the, the bad guy is. Yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> Fair enough. 
I I think stuff I mean, like it, it this breaks, is it breaks the cardinal rule of of movies, which is show don't tell, right? Right, and and I don't I I don't like the 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 system we're currently in, where only IP can make it, and I will say I do not. 100% blame audiences. And I think audiences bear some of the blame for sure. In in 2022, The Northman came out to wide release and like 40 people saw it. I was one of them. <laughs> um but it was a wide release movie that made like no money. There's a there's an example of something that actually got a wide release and was just not received by the public and i kind of get it and i kind of don't the marketing was terrible but also like it's kind of not a super palatable to wide audiences like movie. Was, was the marketing terrible I, well i which I, let me rephrase that i guess my my worry is that the marketing is terrible because the production company doesn't understand how to market a new ip that's part of it, always. Because they're more worried, because like, with these crossover type stuff, so you think like, you know, MCU, Justice League, stuff like that, when you think about the trailers, it's mostly just like showing characters that we already know doing cool stuff. Or just existing. Or just, yeah, just, you know, have, you know saying the, a quippy one-liner or something. The um, Doctor but, Strange, didn't, didn't the one Doctor Strange trailer just have like an over, over the shoulder camera shot of like Doctor, uh, Doctor, of Professor Xavier like sitting there? Yeah. There was something, there was something to that effect. Some, yeah. Something like that. And you're like, and then everyone goes, oh my God. And they write 800 articles about it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm worried that because there's such a focus on these sort of multiple IP crossover type, cinematic universes that people are trying to push now that stuff like the Northmen or like everything everywhere all at once won't get the kind of recognition they deserve for being fun new ideas because companies will be like well what other ip can we tie this into it's not related to anything it's almost amazing yeah when it's almost amazing when like a non-ip movie gets uh even some traction these days. Yeah, I already said it, but everything everywhere all at once is the one that comes to my mind because it seemed to like come out of nowhere. And a lot of the buzz that I heard about it was through word of mouth as opposed to like a a marketing campaign. That's a really good example. That movie is a, is a really good example of the, the larger issue at play. The, and the, and the thing that, that Scorsese and Tarantino very specifically talk about when they talk about how much they personally hate the MCU is here's a movie and and this this movie came out in like April of 2022 or March I can't I don't I don't really care to look that up and remember it I'll go ahead so, I'll I'll look it up real quick first half of 2022 and it came out at a time when there weren't a ton of other big blockbuster competition movies. There were some. And it was insanely successful on a per-theater basis. Movie theaters were getting like $3,000 per screen that it was on, which is like double what the average wide release and wide being, you know, your... Yeah, that's, it, like, that's pretty... Uh... Like, 
1300 screens insane. or 13,000 like when they're like when stuff gets released on thousands and thousands of screens they make like $1300 a piece this is getting like $3000 per screen movie theaters actively wanted to add additional screenings of it because hey this thing is keeping the lights on for me mm-hmm. sony major studio company meanwhile has a movie like morbius it's morbin time (laughs) flopping so bad so so bad it's making like 200 dollars per screen but these movie studios have these theater chains over the barrel in Mm -hmm. 2022 and they could say if you take morbius off of its 18 screens that it's on we will take all of our other movies out of your theaters. And this actually happened to Quentin Tarantino. When he was doing his release of The Hateful Eight, he wanted the world premiere to be... If you've never seen this story, go look it up on YouTube. Go look look up... I don't even know how to look it up, but just like Google in and look up Quentin Tarantino talking about Cinerama Dome, Hateful Eight. I think it was Hateful Eight. It might have been Django. No, it was Hateful Eight. He wanted to have the world premiere at the Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles because in his mind, to him, the Cinerama Dome is like this L.A. fixture and fixture of movies in L.A. Okay. A week or two weeks before The Force Awakens came out, and it also premiered at the Cinerama Dome or had a screen at the Cinerama Dome. And they had like a two-week engagement to play at the Cinerama Dome, and then Tarantino was supposed to come in. Force Awakens was doing really good numbers at the Cinerama Dome, so Disney said, we want to extend it, our our deal, and stay longer. And Tarant- and Cinerama Dome, who owns them? I forget who owns, like, what film company. It's not Regal, but it's it's one of the major, like, film companies, like, like theater chains owns them. And they were like, well, we have, like, a deal with this, this guy you might have heard of called Quentin Tarantino to be the world premiere of his movie. And Disney was like, okay, we'll just take the force awakens out of all your theaters across America. Ouch. And, and they were like, wait, what? And they're like, it, you have a contract that says we can like adjust how long we want to show things and dictate how many screens you show them on. And da, 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 da. And if you don't show, if you don't tell Quentin Tarantino to go pound sand, then we'll pull Star Wars out of all your movie theaters across America. And what do you think a movie? What do you think a movie theater that really movie theaters do not make that much money? Yeah, I think that their biggest income stream is concessions. Actually, concessions. Yeah. So, what do you think a movie theater is gonna do when <laughs> someone says, "You know, the movie that's gonna make like two point five billion dollars in box office, and we'll get people eating popcorn and stuff into your theaters. We're gonna pull that out. They're gonna call up Quentin Tarantino and be like, "Sorry, bro." Yeah. And that's that's the issue. Is that it's it's not just that it's franchises and IP. It's that major studios have realized it's franchises and IP. And they have weaponized it horribly, are holding the theater chains hostage. And that the same thing happened to everything, everywhere, all at once. These studios, or not studios, theater chains wanted to 
kick Morbius out of theaters. And Sony was like, then you don't get any more Sony movies. (laughs) (laughs) Is that really a loss, though? Well, (laughs) (laughs) debatable. Really, really all it did was lock them into a re-release of Morbius, which made even less money. The story behind that's hilarious. They... It's a bunch of it's a bunch of marketing execs that well I can't believe I can't I believe a major movie studio was duped this bad. Like I can and I can't. I, is it duped or did they just like really duped? They miss, were duped. I I don't know if they were duped or if they just well, like really missed the mark on on like people's genuine reactions to that movie. That I, that's where I say they were like they were they were dumb. I guess. Like, Okay, I'll, they I'll saw, go with that. They saw that there were they saw that the popularity of memes of Morbius had shot through the roof and were like, oh, this means people want to see it. <laughs> I'm wondering if they were hoping on like cashing in on a wave of people going, I have to see this movie. It's so bad it must be good. Like ironically? Yeah, maybe. I, <sighs> but even still. <laughs> It's like the fact that nobody went to go see it the second time was just the cherry on top of the whole situation. You're Morbius. You're not the room, bro. Like, but so that's my deal with like, it's funny because I can watch these few episodes and look at like this. We'll get into it even more or we'll probably just repeat ourselves next episode because next episode we're going to do two more anime episodes and then do our traditional anime manga comparison because we'll be hitting the end of the blue arc or blue saga the chapter was really important to Toriyama. It's it's the like one of the only chapters in all of Dragon Ball that was originally released in full color. So it was like a big deal to him and he treated it with a lot of care and a lot of respect. And I I can watch something like that and be like it's fun. And I I like MCU movies. I go to most of them. Guilty. Guilty. And I watch charged. most of their and I watch most of their crappy shows too. <laughs> Yeah, the shows are definitely more hit and miss. But I don't like the system that we're in right now, and it's almost more of a problem of there being just mono- like monopolies. It's almost like these. Uh, it's almost like consolidating everything under like three studios has been a bad thing. It's almost yeah. All it's us. almost like these these large studios are sort of squeezing the life out of cinema, like a giant octopus squeezing the life <laughs> out of Goku. Or and, General Blue squeezing the life out of an eel. And I'll just say, I'm super thankful then that Dragon Ball to date has never fallen. And anime in general, I would say, has not fallen prey overly much to the idea of cinematic universes. And when they do crossovers, they're always like like this in where it's like a couple episodes that are just kind of for fun. Mm-hmm. I know there's like a pretty like there's a there's a a Dragon Ball crossover with like is it like One Piece and it's One Piece and something else. And it's just like a 30 minute like special. Anime in general when they do crossovers, it's like we'll do an episode on your show and an episode on my show and like boop, 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 that'll be it. And I know that there are other like anime crossovers and someone can, you know, at me and be like, oh, Isekai Quartet was originally four other Isekai shows that became a (laughs) crossover. And, you know, oh, uh, Fairy Tale X Rave is like, but who the hell has ever heard of those? I'm sorry. Like, (laughs) 
I gotta be honest. That's I don't super think I dismissive. Have. That's super dismissive, and I've probably just lost. Especially us, like, considering a bunch what, of... especially considering what our our, our main uh, content is. <laughs> yes, uh, but no, I mean, oh, and I guess like Yu Gi Oh is crossed over with itself and stuff. But again, yeah, it's it seems less crassly designed in anime in general on and in manga and in Japan in general on crafting a cinematic universe designed to just cross over IPs. Well, Does that make sense? Is that fair? I think I think it partially it stems from the fact that like typically manga are are different from American comics in that there's like a finite storyline a lot of times. Whereas, like, if you pick up a, an issue of Spider-Man, it's been, like, an ongoing story since the 60s. Yeah. And with Japanese manga, it, I mean, there's a lot of good series that I can think of that don't even make it to 100 issues. But they they tell their whole story. And I think – and you'll see this a lot, too, because, like, you know, uh, Toriyama started out Dr. Slump. Then you got Dragon Ball. And, and if you look, there's a lot of other artists – from that time as as well as after where they'll start with one series and then that series will end and then they'll start a new series it might be a similar setting or it could be something completely different in in tone and in setting and everything and i think it comes down to those authors are like no i just want to tell this one specific story and then i want to move on and do something different mm-hmm. and and i think that that keeps them from wanting to like slap them together in these sort of weird IP conglomerate horrible monstrosities. <laughs> Focus group damn Focus near group written tested, by yeah. like the, written it, by AI. Less like, less corporate schlock and more and more uh focused on I think actual art and storytelling. I think yeah, I think that's that's something too, right? Is oh by the way, it's Dream Nine Dream Nine Toriko X One Piece X Dragon Ball Z Super Special Collaboration. Well, with a name of. like that, I'm surprised more people haven't heard of it. <laughs> but manga, which a lot of anime stems from, and even a lot of anime too, is generally the idea of a person, of a creator, who then has the idea, as opposed to a lot of this IP-driven stuff here, which is the idea of a studio and a focus group and a board of directors that right there is a huge piece of it because when a person is writing a story, even if it's someone like Toriyama, who then we don't know for sure. Did Torishima kind of prod him and be like, dude, put some Dr. Slump in there to boost sales. Even if it comes from a place like that, it's a guy doing it a little more of his own accord and doing it the way he would want to do it instead of having an algorithm build a story for you. That's designed to, piss off as few people as possible so that everyone can just quote unquote, enjoy themselves for two hours. I, all I can think of now is that, uh, is a uh, Torishima is the guy from that meme. That's like a poorly drawn cartoon of like a guy poking like a dead animal with a stick. Like, come on, do something. And <laughs> do he's just stuff. poking Toriyama. <laughs> come on, do stuff. I mean, that's not at all far off. <laughs> <laughs> But so, yes, that's my rant against uh, franchise IP filmmaking in Hollywood in the 21st century. 
It sucks. It has sapped my enthusiasm for so many things away that I didn't think were possible to be sapped away, but here we are. You you have also sapped away my joy for for all things crossover. Congratulations. And I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> are you though? Because technically I am still part of your own brain. So have you really harmed me? <laughs> Now that we're all done talking about Dragon Ball, can I tell you what we do with dead bodies on my planet? No. Stop. I'm focusing on healing. Maybe I need another soak in a rejuvenation chamber. I hate to deprive the universe of a few hours with you being locked inside a medical healing chamber, but you aren't suffering from any new neurological condition or damage. I'm right here. I know, man. Right here in my heart, apparently. With me always. No, like, right here, behind you. Yeah, I'm not falling for that. There's nothing to fall for here. I'm right here. It's incredible. Listeners, listeners, my brain's psychotic break has become so intense, I've now begun feeling the physical sensation of Bikini tapping me on the back. Good try, brain, but I'm steeled against your tricks. Okay. Well, I wasn't exactly expecting some big reunion hug or anything anyway, but being as I just walked I don't know how many miles to get back here, I'm just going to go over there inside that encampment and try to get cleaned up and get some food and rest. Jesus, our battle really wrecked this planet, didn't it? Wrecked it? Oh god, no, please. Damn near killed it! <laughs> I hate this job. Listeners, as I continue heroically staring into a single fixed point in space, in the hopes that someone out there is immortalizing my stance in a painting, uh, preferably a really cool one where I look tall, I'll take my leave of you here. What sorts of wild scenarios will my mind invent to keep Bikini out of my sight since he's quote-unquote back now, even though he's dead? What can put an end to this charade my fragmented mind is playing on me? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership.